guys and welcome to Murder Most Gruesome. My name's Andrea. And I'm Yvonne. What we're going to look at today um, is we're going to look at unidentified victims of murders where a body or remains that might have been found and despite extensive investigating by the police, they've been unable to put their name to the victim. Yeah, I think it's really terrible to think that these people have died and that no one knows or cares enough to either report them missing or go to the police with the name when, and especially when the police have appealed to the public. And a lot of these, when they're finally buried, the police are the only people at the at the funerals. Oh God, that's so sad. There to watch them important. Yeah, so it really, really is sad. an awful way to go and to lay there and have no one claim you. It's awful. Yeah, that would be just horrendous. Yeah. So you're gonna you're doing this podcast. Right I am. Then. Yeah. So take it away when you're ready. So the first case we're going to look at today is the case of Angel of the Meadow. The media, and I think this is this is similar for a, a, a few of these I'm going to do today, it's the media that gave them the name. They gave it to, it's an un- unidentified murder victim whose remains were discovered in 2010 in Angel Meadow, Manchester. Police have extensively searched both nationally and internationally. So they've looked really, put a lot of work into trying to find out this woman's identity or that of her killer. But neither of it has ever been established. So the woman remains to this day um, unnamed and so does the murderer. Right. Which this is the thing. If the police don't know who it is that they are, who's mur- who's been murdered... The- it closes down a lot of avenues. Closes down a lot of avenues, yeah. And there's a few of these that the police have then commissioned or asked artists or forensic people to create those skulls or... Oh, those heads, right? Yeah, the yeah. heads from, from the skulls. And they've actually, those are on our Facebook. Oh, right, wow. For people to look at. Please please have a look on there, as is the case when we do anything of where the, uh, someone's gone missing or the murderer is still at large. If you have any information contact the relevant authorities. Yeah. The body was discovered on 25th of January 2010 at the site of a former car park in... It's located between Angel Street and Danzig Street and Miller Street in Manchester, England. So that is quite close to us. That's about 45 minutes drive away from us. The area is known as Angel Meadow and it was actually the location of a notorious Victorian slum which Friedrich Engels notably referred to it as Hell Upon Earth. Oh, God. So at the time of the discovery, the site was being prepared for a redevelopment into the new head offices for the cooperative group. So a workman, a workman working on the area on the 25th of January noticed a skull, which then led to the discovery of a whole human skeleton, and it was concealed underneath sections of blue carpet and the police were called to the scene at uh, 15.50 or uh, 10 to 4 in the afternoon. The victim had suffered, she'd suffered a fractured neck, clavicle and jaw and the, the police initially believed that she was aged between 18 and 35 when she died. The date of her death was identified as being in the 1970s or 80s. So she'd laid there a long time, she discovered yeah, in 2010. Uh, yeah. 
police believe the woman was born between 1950 and 1954. So she'd really be in the late 70s by this point had she lived. Now, the victim was a size 12 and her height, they... The height was between five foot one and five foot seven. And they said she was probably European, but there was a possibility she was from India or the Middle East. And she had a number of something that would people would notice that she had a number of fillings and her first upper right premolar was missing, which when she just when she smiled oh, in life it. it would have been apparent. So that was a, a, a right uh, upper right premolar. Yeah, that's a distinguishing feature, isn't it? It is. You notice that when people smile, don't you? People yeah. missing teeth. She was wearing, the victim was wearing a, a blue jumper, a blue bra, and then a green pinafore dress and black stiletto cart shoes. And they only actually found one of these. Okay. So they, obviously, with anything like this, they searched the whole area and they found, you know, found these items, but only one stiletto cart shoe. Now, the pinafore dress was a really distinctive and it had large buttons and a unique 1970s style pattern. Right. So a number of items were found with or near a body. So there was a plastic Guinness measuring chart from the late 1960s. It's a Guinness measuring chart. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm, I, I didn't know whether it was measuring as in things like measuring out ingredients, whether it's plastic, yeah, yeah. or whether it was a... Don't they have those measuring charts where you, you find them in the beginning of diaries, where it has all the conversions? Yeah, maybe. So I'm not actually quite sure of that. I'll actually see and see if I can like then post that on our Instagram. Yeah. She had an orange, um, there was an orange patterned carpet. There were dark blue and blue carpets, a pair of tights and a handbag. Now, one of the carpet pieces, which had been put over a body, so it covered a body, was thought by police to have been removed from a Ford Cortina and featured a hole cut out for a gear stick. Right. Now, a death was initially treated as non-suspicious, which I don't know whether how many people just drop dead in the middle of a, an yeah. area um, and, bury, and bury themselves in the carpet before they die. But they had the post-mortem and they actually revealed that the woman had suffered a violent death and the details of which weren't released to the public. So the investigation commenced with a search of missing, per as you would imagine, they had a look through missing person records and, they had, and an appeal was made to the public in the hopes that someone would recognise the items recovered with the body. Now, detectives think she was beaten to death and possibly sexually, sexually assaulted as she's naked from the waist down. Oh. So they must have, like, obviously they found some tights, so oh, they must yeah. have, yeah. I think they were hairs and they were removed. Yeah. So, in May 2011, the police revealed a facial reconstruction of the woman, and on the 24th of May of the same year, 2011, the reconstruction featured on an episode of BBC Crime Watch programme, which we've talked about on other, some of the yeah. other British murder cases that we've done. It's It was about an hour, an hour and a half long, and it, it, it aired every month, and they would do reconstructions of crimes... You know, have obviously if it was a, they'd have the victim dressed up in their clothes and and, and walking down the street. They do things like that. Now, at the at this time, police confirmed that the victim's dentistry, 
so the gladder look did not match the dental records so they must have had three women in mind that were obviously known to be missing from especially from the greater manchester area and these were helen sage though she went missing in 1997 zoe simpson she went missing in 1996 and helen mccart was murdered in 1988 now <clears throat> so the the dentistry did not match them three right. So they did DNA analysis in 2011 to try and establish whether she was actually a victim of either Peter Tobin or Ronald Castry, who were killers known to be active at that time, but showed there were no connections. So that says to me that maybe they had some DNA to to actually test that against. Oh, yeah. Forensic artists provide the made a facial reconstruction in the hope that relatives would come forward and, like I said, we'll post this on our social media for you to view. Now, in November 2012, the police announced that they had compiled a list that comprised of 18 potential identities for the victim. And this increased to 21 stroke 22 following input from the public. Police thought that the strongest candidate for her identity was an individual from Tanzania who had been brought to their attention. Tanzania, sorry was an individual from Tanzania who had been brought to their attention after Tanzanian family had made contact. And additional leads were investigated from Ireland, Texas and the, and the Netherlands. Uh, so they, they didn't pan out. You know, no. They didn't find out, obviously, because otherwise she'd be identified by this point. In March 2015, the remains of the victim were buried in an unmarked grave in Southern Cemetery, Manchester. And this ceremony was attended only by two police detectives who were working on the case. In March 2015, police also confirmed that they had a DNA profile of the victim and they were undertaking a familial DNA search as part of the investigation, which I think that's quite unusual for not to that to ping up these days with all these genetic yeah. ancestry ancestries. Sites. Now, I don't know whether the rules have changed, but I think in England they can use them, especially if they're wanting to find the identity of someone and it wasn't trying to find a the killer of... It wasn't the killer's DNA. Yeah, yeah. Now, a DC... Clinch said she was uh, she was buried so her remains could remain retrievable if necessary if any family can be identified. So they buried her, they didn't cremate her, so that if, if yeah. family wants to take her and, and which you would if you found it was your it was relative. your relative, you'd want her to be able to, you'd want to move into a place. Yeah, yeah, you'd yeah. want to have that funeral yourself, wouldn't you? Yeah. So in 2018, so not so long ago, investigative journalists Chris Clark and Tim Hicks suggested that the Angel of the Meadow case could be connected to convicted killer Christopher Hallowell. But nothing's come of that. And really from then, there's nothing been done in the case. There's been no other major breakthroughs. Anyone with information about this case can contact GMP Greater Manchester Police Cold Case Review Unit on 0161 856 5961 or Crime Stoppers, which is a crime charity that you don't have to give your name, it's anonymous, 
And I think from other cases when I've looked at when Crime Stoppers are involved, there's a, there's a form you can fill out that's you know it doesn't provide contact details it can be anonymous because people are scared even these days to text or to send yeah. something but that is anonymous now crime stoppers number is 0800 treble five treble one have a look on our facebook site have a look at the the facial reconstruction if you've got any information just contact obviously the relevant because these things happen oh, people, yeah, yeah. you know in the days of internet and searching people listening people you know, it could jog someone's memory. Oh, yeah. The next case we're going to look at today is one called Nude in the Nettles. So, again, the Nude in the Nettles is a name given by the media uh, to the body of an unknown female found concealed under what was reportedly a nettle bush but actually ended up being a willow herb bush near Sutton Bank in North Yorkshire, England, in 1981. So that's another one quite near us. Mm -hmm. The police were notified of the body's location by an anonymous caller who he rang up and claimed that he could not give his name for reasons of national security. So, But neither the identifier... Neither the identity of the woman nor that of the caller has ever been established despite them an extensive investigation. To go into a bit more detail, on Friday the 28th of August 1981, 8 a, about 8 in the morning, Constable John Jeffries of Ripon Police received a telephone call at the police station from a man who was described as well-spoken and with a slight trace of a local accent. So the accent they're talking about is very much like our, our accents, the Yorkshire accent. Now, the caller said, quote, Near Scroton Moor House, you will find a decomposed body among the willow herbs. The caller then gave instructions on how to find the body. Call lasted for less than a minute, as you can imagine, it wasn't a, a long message. When the caller was asked for his name and address, he stated that he could not give this information for, quote, reasons of national security, and just hung up. He just terminated the call. That's a weird way. Yeah. To tell the police, or to tell anyone that you found a body. Yes. And it's, it's just, a, it doesn't ring true. If that was... I would imagine if that was anybody just that had just discovered a body, they'd be panicked, they'd be scared, they wouldn't it wouldn't be like a clear you will find a body near. I'd be like, Oh my god, I've just found a body. Yeah, and also as well, I wouldn't know what a willow bush was. No. <laughs> I wouldn't So it must be someone I don't I don't know, it must be someone who's knowledge, has a knowledge had a knowledge of the area, has a knowledge of, of what what in it? Well, has some gardening knowledge for a start, but I do not profess to be a gardener or someone who's very good at things like that. No, yeah, so, hey, gardening. Yeah, the local village constable attended the location identified, but initially couldn't find the body. But after careful searching, he uncovered human bones underneath a large bed of roseberry rose bay willow. Maybe he didn't know what. Yeah. yeah, that's probably. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be willing to. I'd be like, I'd be like if, I, if that were me, I had to go find out and I'd been giving them instructions. I'd be like, what's a willow bush? Yeah. And I mean, is this, when when was this again? It, it, it was 1980 when I. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that was, yeah, that was way before you could Google it. I'd be like, 
Willow yeah. bush. And you, you, you forget <laughs> you forget where would you get have to go to a library to like find the yeah, book yeah. I'm in. Um <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> but what's interesting is it's like bones and not like it's it's not, yeah. It's, it's not human where you find a lot of times when people come across bodies, they think oh, it looks like a store mannequin, or you spot the white arm or the arm or the leg or, or the torso. But it, it's it's obviously not immediately noticeable. No. Somebody dumped in a in right side of a road, you're going to get spotted very quickly. But if the the the, the office, police officer, the police constable's gone there looking to find a body, so he's already searching, and said it's under a bush, so not not you know, be able to see obvious, it. Is it. So after careful searching, he uncovered. So it wasn't an obvious thing to see. So the CID was called to the scene. So the CID detectives. Um, and they cleared a large area of undergrowth. So again, it doesn't sound like it was obvious of undergrowth. And the body was discovered near to Sutton Bank Top on an unclassified road between Sutton Bank and Scroton and Reevelow near the junction with the A170 Thirsk to Scarborough Road. Now, Sutton Bank, isn't that where all the caravans get stuck? I think it's one of those that, doesn't it, isn't it one of those that gets shut down any time yeah. like that? the slightest bit, isn't it? Yes, I think it is Some as well. Some bank but and really, one as well, isn't there? Yeah, there's a really snake pass snake in Manchester. But in Sutton Bank, I think it's really... We've gone up... In the hill. Yeah, it's hill. really sharp. And then steep hills. Yeah. And it's very near North Yorkshire. It's very near going towards the coast. I remember when we were going on caravanning holidays. Yeah. Going past and, like, my mum and dad, like, praying the car would make it up Sutton Bank. Yes, And yeah. you'd go past and there'd be other cars broken down on the yeah. way up. Because the car... Because it were like... The cars weren't built for those... Kind of roads. Whatever, they're obviously not as and good as every they are so today. often somebody go up in a caravan and get stuck. Yeah. Um I can't imagine anything worse. If I was towing something that big I'd avoid somewhere like that, like the plague. Yeah, but you probably couldn't avoid it. Or go around yeah. miles, I don't know. I'd probably gamble me. It is thought that the body had laid there undisturbed for up to two years. So again, how odd that somebody's just wrong and said. Yeah. I always think things like that. And I I am you know, this is just my opinion. But that that person's known something more about that. That's just oh, that's where my mind went. And is it something like they've? It's somebody that. And what reason would you have not to not to kind of go for go further and give more information? And it looks like I think it's somebody protecting someone else, or has has their child, or someone they're related to done something, or admitted to something, and they can't live with themselves. The cat will live with themselves knowing that that, that body's there, but on the same hand, they can't just turn that person into the police. They can't mm. give too much information. Because why, why would you ring up and say that? Because it was a matter of national security. Yeah. So, <coughs> well, maybe not. Yeah. No, that wasn't national security. His name and address was. <laughs> oh, right. Okay. So... A clue was just a clue. One of the clues when they they searched all the undergrowth was a discarded lid from a tin of meat paste, and they investigated that and found they found to it to have been sold on the sixth of October nineteen seventy nine, and that was actually found beneath the body. 
So police believe the woman was murdered, but they have never really revealed how how she died. Right. The location was near the entrance to Scotton Moor House Farm, and it was a popular family picnic area, and the body was so well concealed that it was highly improbable that it would have been discovered by accident. Yeah. So the anonymous caller became a suspect in the murder, but his identity has never been established. Right. Now, in life, the woman was 5 foot 4 inches, or 1.16 metres tall. She had dark brown hair, which was a length of about 4 to 6 inches. Um, And that hadn't been treated, it hadn't been coloured. Yeah. And it was cutting like a page boy style. Quite shortish hair. And her toenails are painted with Max Factor Maxi pale pink. And she also wore a size four shoe. The woman had given birth to two or three children during her life, which is really, really sad. So people are out there missing a mother. And she didn't have a wedding ring, um, but it was believed that she had been married. I don't know how they came to that conclusion. So no jewellery or clothing of any kind was found with the body, hence nude in the nettles. So that implies someone had tried to conceal her identity, identity. Yeah. which i was thinking if you're trying to conceal someone's identity then you're close to them there's Got a reason for that there's a link to them now when they looked at the skeleton when they analyzed the skeleton it was revealed that the the victim had a neck vertebrae abnormality which would have caused a bad back and that she also had a displaced septum and an old ankle fracture so bone analysis also revealed that uh, that under the age of seven the woman lived in an area with high levels of natural fluoride in the drinking water okay it's amazing what they can see isn't it It must have been like how bones were formed so two local areas so the two nearest areas to where she was found that have these high levels of natural fluoride are hartlepool up near um Newcastle and Grimsby near Hull. Right. The victim's upper teeth and all but six of her lower teeth were missing and an upper dental plate had been fitted. Now, the woman had heavy staining on her remaining teeth, which indicated that she smoked and drank heavily. And it did say that, as generally, she did not look after herself. Right. Oh, it's awful if that was written about you. Smoked, drank... Missing teeth and didn't look after herself. Oh, no, <laughs> and didn't colour hair either. Following the investigation of the site of discovery, they, uh, they, they did a wider investigation and they discovered near the site of the you know near the site of where a body was found some female clothing hanging from a tree about a mile away, and this clothing was a black evening gown and some underwear. Now the items could not be; they couldn't ever prove that they're related to her, that they belong to her. But no one has ever come forward to claim them. So she'd been there that long that she was now a skeleton, and this was supposedly a really common picnic area. Mm. You'd really think that someone had noticed the clothes, or but then again, you it was don't... a mile away, wasn't it? So right. and they said it's like that area is woody and remote, and if it was, I mean, if it was woods that belonged to someone. 
and they didn't really patrol them or go in them. I mean, if I found, if I owned some woodland and found a black, e- a black dress hanging from a tree, actually it freaked me out, actually, I think, a bit. Yeah. I wouldn't necessarily start taking it down. I think that is odd, but not do anything about it. Police, in, uh, police investigated the possibility that the woman was actually was an escaped inmate from Ascombe Grange Open Prison, so nearby. However, the prisoner must have, like, heard... Obviously, this must have made the papers. So she unexpectedly responded to a request from the police to prove that she was still alive by sending investigating officers two thumbprints and a signature on a blank sheet no. of paper. <laughs> still at large, then. Still at large, <laughs> but not, not that woman. Here's my thumbprint and my signature. Yeah. Now, in, 19, in, in November 1981, medical students constructed a waxwork of the woman and it was one of the first examples of using this technique to try and identify an unknown, um, unknown person, unknown uh, victim. And we'll show you pe- uh, photos of this on our media pages. So those photos are on our Facebook. In 2012, the bodies, so it was bur- the body was buried, and in 2012, it was exhumed so that they could get a DNA profile. The profile was uh, compared to samples from five families that had missing people, two of whom came forward on their own volition that, and they thought they could be related to her, but no match was found. In A year later, police said that they had added the woman's DNA profile to a national database in the hope that a match would be found in the future. Right. And that, that does... I mean, in England, we have that familial DNA where it will ping up if somebody's related, so somebody got caught speeding and was related to this person, even, you know, a son, a daughter, I mean, she's had two children. Yeah. Uh, you know... Which might have had grandchildren by now, or... Yeah. So you would think that... But you say that, we've never been arrested and our DNA taken, no. so it depends what kind of uh, people you are, what kind of family you've got. Now... So that, there's nothing from, I mean, that was 2013, so nothing's been found no. since, which is a pity. But again, if you've got any information, please contact the authorities, you know, to tell them what you know, and, and let's give this woman a name and a, a, a proper funeral, because it's an unmarked grave. We talked yeah. about that in the, the, the Angel in the Meadow. You, you haven't even got your date no, of birth, your yeah. headstone. There's a name on your headstone. It's just an unmarked grave until they can they can put something on there and she can be buried near no the family. One, no one should end up like that. Should no one should end up being uh, buried in an unmarked grave with only police attending at your funeral. Our next case is the Balney Torso. And this actually refers to, as the name suggests, to the partial remains of an unknown male that were discovered in woods near Balney, southern England, in October 1991. So on Friday 11th of October 1991, Colin Oliver, who was 62 at the time, discovered the torso in woods off Broxmead Lane in Balney, Sussex. Now, Oliver was walking home to Burgess Hill from Cookfield, along, and he was walking along Broxfield Lane, and he stopped along the lane and went through the gate leading to a field. So he wanted a wee, really. So he went, he, he did, he did, that's not me, he did truly, he was, he stopped a lot, he went in, into the trees to, to relieve himself, should we say, and found a bloody torso rolled up in a piece of carpet and undergrowth. 
he then walked to because at the time 1991 mobile phones weren't a thing yeah. he walked to the Burgess Hill police station to tell them about what he'd, what he'd seen and claimed to have been so disturbed by this discovery that he actually had trouble sleeping for several months afterwards so it really affected him the, so the remains were found to be that of a male who was believed to have been in his 60s at the time of his death. The head and hands of the victim had been removed, so and the severed head and limbs, they were never found. Now, one arm had been severed six inches below the elbow and the other two inches below the elbow. Mm. And it, it appears, and police believe, that it had been done in order to remove an identifying tattoo. Right. So the arms and head appeared to have been removed with an axe or a bolt proper. The victim was described as he was white, <laughs> he had a protruding belly and was circumcised and he had a small star-shaped mole on his right thigh. The victim was uh, wearing, is wearing turned-up trousers from Foster's and a blue shirt with a, with a distinctive motif on the pocket. Now, the investigation to find his identity and the identity of the murderer marked the case was assigned the name Operation A23. Now, it initially was employing 60 people and it cost the taxpayer £150,000. DCI Peter Kennett led the initial inquiry and detectives searched files of over 100 missing men without finding a match, an appeal to the public to come forward with an identity was fruitless. I know we laughed when we said he had a protruding belly, which means he was quite well built. He's obviously been eating, drinking, living mm. somewhere. He's not living on the on the streets. No, no. So suspects. So in December 1991, police were contacted by a local estate agent with a potential lead. So, a large rented house in Copyhold Lane, Chuckfield, 1.5 miles away from the where he had been dumped, had been abandoned, which raised their suspicions. So, police investigated the property and they found a copy of the Penthouse magazine, which is a, a nude magazine, uh, and, it, and it contained an article about dismembering bodies with numbers scrawled on the pages. Right. Which is odd. I'm right there, Penthouse Magazine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it is. It. It's a... Um, what's yeah. the best way to put it? A pornographic magazine. Yes. It's yeah. soft, I think it is. It's not a... Yeah. It's like top shelf magazine you'll buy them a news, a news agency, yeah. Gunther, Gunther Joseph Nieper, I think I'm saying that right, from Dresden, Germany, and Cornelia Maria Tussell first rented this property in September 1991 and they paid £10,000 which was six months rent in advance that is a lot oh of money God. in 1991 wow that's a lot of money now you could rent and we're, we're in the middle of the cost of living crisis now and prices house prices have gone up and rental prices have really gone up you can rent a three-bedroomed you can rent I mean I know it's down Properties down south in the southern parts of England are more expensive. Yeah. But you can rent a house where we near, near where we are for about a thousand pounds a month. So that is a lot of money to be paying in nineteen ninety one. Yeah. Nieper, who I've been using the pseudonym Doctor Matthias Herman, was been sought in Germany and Ireland on suspicion of business fraud. 
So they abandoned that property sometime around the 9th of October 1991. Right. So in June 1992, Nipa was arrested in Spain and police interviewed. So this was all from the estate agents. Yeah. You know, coming forward and saying, I mean, obviously, if you're going to pay £10,000 for six months' rent and then you abandon it halfway through, the, it is going to yeah. raise some eyebrows. They police interviewed Nipa in Frankfurt and established that the gang he worked for intended to start a fraud operation, but he, had, he denied any involvement in the murder of the victim. And in August 1992, police admitted that there was no evidence to link Nipa to the murder. And in January 1994, police returned again to Germany to interview another unnamed male who had visited the property in Copyhold Lane. Okay. So the must, I think police really suspected that this house had something to do with yeah. this man's murder. On the 2nd of August 1994, after a brief service, the remains of the victim were laid to rest at Western Road Cemetery in Haywards Heath. The coffin bore the name Unknown Male. Now, eight people attended the pauper's funeral paid for by Mid-Sussex District Council. And a lot of people, a lot of old people, they are they live in fear of having a pauper's funeral. It, yeah. it wasn't all, it, not anymore, but it used to be on my grave or putting graves with other people. So the council actually paid for this man to be buried. Now, the mourners in attendance were people from the police, the coroner's office, and Mid-Sussex District Council. So right. nobody was there to see him been no. laid to rest. So in December 1995, a um, few days before Christmas, so this was a year and a about a year and a half um, after this man was buried, a few days before Christmas, some flowers and a note were left at his grave and the note bore the message for the unknown male, Peter and team remember our loss. So that was a bit random. That's really yeah. cryptic. So in March 2009, police actually exhumed the body in the hope that advances in forensic techniques would provide additional information. And again, on 12th of November 2009, the case actually appeared on the BBC programme Crime Watch. By 2010, um, it was reported that following media appeals on Crime Watch UK and its German equivalent, right. numerous suggestions for the victim's identity have been received, but none of these ever came, came to any fruition. Yeah. yeah. Police stated that, that three missing persons had been discounted as the identity of the victim. And their families had actually been informed. So, yeah, moving on a year. In 2011, it was revealed that evidence gathered in 2010 indicated that the victim had been dressed post-mortem and that the clothes did not belong to him. Right. And I think it's quite easy. I always remember my, my granddad was a police officer. Well, our granddad was a police officer. He once told me about this case where they were caught this man who had died and they could tell that he'd been, been dressed. He died of a heart attack, but they... And he was in his own, on his own in, the, in his house. And they could tell... There's a way they can tell, and I don't know how, but they can tell when somebody's been dressed. Right. And ra ra been dressed rather than dressing themselves. Okay. And they couldn't work out who he was. Anyway, it turned out that he'd been having an affair and he'd had a... Um, heart, did I say heart attack? He died of heart attack or stroke. It, one of those things, but he'd had, he'd 
he died quite suddenly in the presence of his mistress. Right. So she, she dressed, dressed him. him. Yeah. <laughs> and before she went. Right. They said that they could tell he'd been dressed post-mortem by somebody else and that the clothes weren't his. They reinvestigated, the reinvestigation, sorry, examined a femur, a rib bone and toenail from the victim. Mm. Now, <laughs> this... <laughs> Hang on a minute, toenail. No, that's my thing. Uh, uh, now, this revealed that the victim likely came from southern Germany or a surrounding country. Right. An anal- analysis of the toenail oh suggested God. the victim spent the last year of his life in the UK or the French-German border. Now, how, how they knew that, I how? don't know. <laughs> well, don't your nails so stuff? Aren't some poisons coming out of your nails or stuff like that? Mm. Oh, I don't know. But it, or maybe it was just grind stuff even. stuck under the toenail. So, <laughs> the revised description of the victim. So, we're laughing, but it's not no. funny. But sometimes you've got to laugh, haven't you? Yes. Um, the revised description of the victim was his height was between 5 foot 6 and 5 foot 8. He was aged between 30 and 45 and most likely in his late 30s at the time of death. He had a strongly built upper body. When he looked at his skeleton, it indicated that he was strong, well-nourished and healthy at the time of his death and had no signs of any degenerative illnesses. That again remains remains an open case they haven't found him and they, they haven't found his name and they haven't found obviously more um more to the point that the name of his murderers so if you have any information about that please contact the relevant police authorities please now our next case what is uh, the victim was named adam and not by the media this time it was the name police gave to an unidentified male child whose torso was found in the River Thames in London, United Kingdom, on the 21st of September 2001. So the investigators believe the child was likely from southern West Nigeria, southwestern Nigeria, and that several days before his murder, he was actually trafficked to the United oh. Kingdom for, for a multi-ritual sacrifice. Oh my God. Now, to date, no one has been charged with his murder, with Adam's murder, and his identity, true identity remains unknown. So on the 21st of September 2001, on the 21st of September 2001, so the torso of Adam was discovered in the River Thames near Tower Bridge in central London. Now he was dubbed Adam by the police officers and the unidentified, unidentified remains belonged to a black male around four to eight years old and he had been wearing orange girls' shorts. Right. So the post-mortem showed that Adam had been poisoned, his throat had been slit to drain the blood from his body, and his head and limbs had been expertly removed. So that's what, they make, that's what makes them think it's a ritual killing, that it had his blood drained? One of the, one of the aspects, yeah. Right. And they're very, I, I think police are very loath to admit things like that, so mm. they must have really had strong uh, suspicions. Now, further forensic testing examined his stomach contents and they found trace minerals in his bones to establish that Adam had only been in the United Kingdom for a few days. Okay. Or a few days or a couple of weeks before he was murdered. 
They believe that he likely came from a region of southwestern Nigeria near Benin City. And it's that is known as or recognised as the birthplace of voodoo. Okay. Now, this evidence led investigators to suspect that Adam was trafficked to Britain specifically for a muter killing. Now, that's a ritual sacrifice performed by a witch doctor that uses a child's body parts to make medicinal potions called muti. Oh, my God. They were unable to find a match for Adam in databases of missing children in Britain and Europe. And the investigators made requests to the public for assistance. This story initially only had received moderate publicity because it was very close to the 11th of September terrorist attacks in the United States. Um, In the UK, coverage and interest in the case increased over the next year. So, so like, that happened, so there wasn't a lot of... And then, gradually, more interest happened and more coverage happened and rewards were offered for information leading to the killer's conviction or to his identification. The story has never really received much publicity in Nigeria. Right. Now, when investigators reached an impasse in 2002, London officials flew to Johannesburg, South Africa where Nelson Mandela, uh, the Nobel Prize winner and former president of South Africa, actually made a public appeal requesting any information that might be relevant to help the police in London identify Adam. Mandela's appeal was broadcast all over Africa and translated into the tribal languages, including Yoruba, which was the local language in the region that investigators linked to Adam. Yeah, that he came from. Yeah. But I don't think they really, they didn't get any. Obviously, they no. didn't get the information. Is still unnamed. So in two thousand and three, London Metropolitan Police travelled to South Africa again um, to consult with detectives and Muti experts. And the expert suggested that the orange shorts meant Adam was related to his killers. Okay. Now in Muti rituals, the colour red is the colour of resurrection. And accordingly, at least one of Adam's killers was related to him and was trying to apologise to his soul, praying that he might rise again. Right. Praying to Adam's soul? It would be praying to God or deity. So praying to someone, whoever, because I don't think it's, it's different gods and different spirits, I suppose. I don't know much about that. Um, religion. The police subsequently travelled to Nigeria again and launched a campaign to track Adam's parents. Despite visiting elementary schools and looking at reported missing children in the region, there was no success. So really, when I was reading this and researching this, I thought they really have done their best to try and find out this identity of this child. On the March the 29th, 2011, it was reported that the torso was that of a six-year-old named Ikpomosa after a television crew managed to track down a woman who used to care for him, care for him in Germany due to his parents being deported back to Nigeria. Oh, right, okay. This, this woman, Joyce, a mother of two, had told ITV's London Tonight that she had handed the six-year-old to a man reportedly named Bawa, who proceeded to take the child to London. Now, and detectives said that this was a major breakthrough. So about two years later, in 2013, the BBC 
which is a TV channel, British Broadcasting Company, it stands for, was contacted by this choice who, who said she was prepared to tell them everything she knew about the boy. So she revealed that Adam's real name was in fact, in fact Patrick Harbour and not Iqpamwosa. She also identified Bauer as Kingsley Ojo and said that she had wrongly identified a photograph that had been circulating in the press as Patrick when actually it was actually a fact, a friend of a living, um, a friend's living son. Right. Now, police have doubts about a mental state and they think these claims these claims were doubted by detectives and thus Adam has never been formally identified. Right, I don't think the Metropolitan Police started to believe I think she changed the story. There must be other things that we're unaware of because they never really release everything. But no. So Metropolitan Police actually believe the publicity surrounding the case has acted as a deterrent for further ritual crimes in the UK. In July 2002, a Nigerian woman arrived in the UK from Germany and she claimed to have actually fled from a, from a Yoruba cult that practised ritual murders and she claimed that they had attempted to kill her son and that she knew that Adam was murdered in London by his parents. However, police searching her flat found orange shorts with the same clothing label as those found on Adam. In December 2002, she was deported back to Nigeria. Right. Don't think there were anything really else on that. Now, surveillance of the woman's associates brought the police to another Nigerian, a man named Kingsley Ojo. Now, searches of Ojo's house found a series of ritual items, but none of the DNA on that items matched Adam's DNA. In, 2000, in July 2004, Ojo was trial, charged with child trafficking offences and jailed for four years. Our final case is Clock and Yog, Forest Man, and I hope I'm saying that right. And this refers to an unidentified murder victim found in the Clock and Yog Forest in Denbyshire, Wales, in November 2015. And I'm really sorry if I pronounced any of those wrong. People of Wales, I'm sorry. The body had laid undiscovered for over 10 years and despite extensive, again, investigations by North Wales Police, National and UK Appeals and input from the serial killer Peter Moore, the identity of both the body and the murderer or murderers remains a mystery. Now, the remains found on the evening of 14th of November 2015 by two brothers called Andrew and Mark Middle, and they were camping in Clockenyog Forest during the 2015 Wales Rally GB, which they were spectating. It was dark, and Mark was using a torch to look for firewood in the woods when he found a human skull on the forest floor, and when he, he gave it a closer look, he realised it was human. Now, the skull was covered in moss and was largely concealed by the undergrowth. Now, North Wales police were notified of the discovery at about half past eight in the evening and a local officer attended the scene and concluded that the brothers had found the fully decomposed remains of a human male. Well, we're going camping, aren't we, in about two weeks? Yeah. So we've actually bought some torches because we only have the torches on our phones. And last time I went camping, I forgot to charge my phone, so I had neither my phone nor a torch. Now, based on tree growth, 
body decomposition and the fact that the area of the forest where the victim was found was planted in 1985, the police believe the body was deposited there between 1995 and 2005. Now, the remains were found close to one of Clockinog's sections of the rally and near, near to Pentry, Ilm, Kima and Lind Brinig. Uh, so again, I'm sorry for any mispronunciations. Now, the deposition location of the body was easily accessible as it was only a few metres from two forest roads. The location of the discovery was known to be near to the murder and burial of Edward Carthy, who at 28 was the youngest victim of serial killer Peter Moore. Now, Moore later claimed that Clockinog Forest Man was found in exactly the same place as Edward Carthy. But police, I don't think, have ever, ever kind of commented on that or or said that was correct now after the discovery the police started a large-scale search of the forest and that this took about five weeks they uncovered an almost entire skeleton of a human male the majority of the skeleton was recovered in dense trees and undergrowth a few meters away from the location of the skull now the remains were removed two days after the discovery and taken away to be examined by a pathologist Um, A DNA profile was extracted from the skeleton and no match was found in the UK National DNA Database or the UK Missing Persons Unit. Biologists and forensic anthropologists gathered samples and evidence from the undergrowth in an attempt to date the body. Pathological investigation indicated that the man died from blunt force trauma to the head. Now, police established it was likely that the man was murdered in an unknown unknown location between 2004 and 2010, and the body was subsequently dumped at that location where it was found. Right. Which found years later, five years later. Now, it is likely that the man would have been born before 1950 and aged over 54 at the time of his death, but most likely would be in his 60s. He'd, he would have been well built in life and would have had a height of between five foot eight and five foot ten. He had an injury to his spine, fused vertebrae, a broken nose and a possible injury to his left wrist. He had arthritis and an inflammatory condition in his spine and other joints. So in life the victim would have experienced pain and reduced movement. Definitely. He'd lost a number of teeth during his life, which would have resulted in sunken cheeks. Um, all his posterior molar teeth were absent, which suggests that he was not dentally aware early in his life. However, this appeared to be followed by a sudden change of circumstance, um, leading to extensive dental work of a very high quality, completed later in life. Right. So police stated that the victim had undergone two identifiable dental procedures in life. The first was that the victim had a number of crowns to his front teeth. And this work appeared to have been done in the UK between 1980 and 2000. The second procedure was an uncommon procedure, which was a remedial filling to a temporary plastic crown, which had been badly worn. Now, John Rosie, a forensic odontologist, stated that as a dental work was highly distinctive and involved specialist work, it could allow a dentist to identify the victim. 
So information regarding his this, the victim's dental work was published in dentistry journals by the police. Oh, when I read it. things like this, I think the police really do put a lot of work in into finding and putting up, into doing things like yeah. this. Some items of clothing were found near to the body, but they couldn't confirm that they were associated with the victim. Yeah. Now, these items were a, green, a dark green Pringle jumper, some dark red decomposed Marks and Spencer's underwear, and both those are really expensive brands. Yeah, Pringle's are. a... It's a Scottish brand. It's, it's like a golfers wear it, but... It would be an expensive old man's yeah. type of attire. attire. And Marks and Spencer's underwear, you know, that's, Marks and Spencer's is, a, is a, a very... It's a high street chain store for people who are not from the UK. But it is quite expensive to buy things there. And it is it's renowned for good quality. The underwear was manufactured in 1999 and Pringle of Scotland confirmed that that jumper was produced between 2000 and 2004. Right. In June 2016, the police released a photograph of the victim's jawbone in the hopes that dentists might recognise their dental work and help identify the victim. And they also announced that they were undertaking familial DNA research. On the 26th of September 2016, they, the police released images showing how the man could have looked when he was alive at the ages of 50, 60 and 70. Wow. And again, on the BBC Crime Watch programme. In March 2017, police confirmed that it had been cont- um, contacted by and met with serial killer Peter Moore following his claims that he knew the identity of Clockenyog Forest Man. Now, Moore claimed in a letter that the victim was a mature, a mature student at the Aberystwyth University and who had disappeared in 1996. Now, Moore did not disclose the victim's name, but Daily Post journalists identified a Roger Evans of Bradley near Stoke-on-Trent and he disappeared in, on the 16th of January 1996, aged 46, and he was in his first year at Aberystwyth University. Now, it was later reported that this that his theory was discounted by the police due to conflicting dates. In October 2017, police support officers and race marshals distributed leaflets to attendees of the 2017 Wales Rally G, G, uh, Great Britain GB, which was what the campers had been attending yes yeah when they but when they were discovered yeah there was they haven't got back any any leads of kind of developed into anything and as of as of now which is 2023 still not any closer to identify into uh, identifying the name of this victim so that's our podcast for today um I just repeat that obviously if you have anyone has any any information please contact the relevant there's a few different police forces dealing with these because they've found or they were discovered in different obviously if anyone has any information on any of the cases that we have discovered on today's pod we have covered on today's podcast please inform the relevant police authorities there are a few because they were found in different areas of the United Kingdom so it's that's all from me so it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from me okay bye 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 bye